Well, if you're home and uh, join a cup of coffee, sitting in your lazy boy chair, grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be looking at the text that Amy just read to us, a very important text for us. And before we dive into the text, I want to remind us again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is uh, doing a number of things. He is a master teacher. So on the one hand, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it becomes obvious that none of us can live up to these standards of the kingdom that he describes. In fact, Jesus himself says, your righteousness must exceed those of the scribes and Pharisees, and that would, that would have been almost impossible to do. So part of the Sermon on the Mount is simply to drive you back to Jesus, to say only in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can I even begin to live like this. I think it's also designed, the Sermon on the Mount, is to drive those who have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to drive you to the point where you become poor in spirit, the first beatitude, and recognize you are helpless and hopeless before a holy God. And only in Jesus can you be brought in to the kingdom of his dear son, Ephesians 1. I think the text is also showing us what the future kingdom is going to look like. There's an element of thy kingdom come, Jesus, as he teaches us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's looking forward to what the kingdom in the future, that consummated kingdom, will look like. But it's also giving us, now that we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, this is what we ought to be like as citizens of that kingdom today. And of course... In a text like this today, if it's not already obvious, it will be shortly. There is no way for any of us, even those of us who know Christ as our Savior, to live this text apart from the enabling work of the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it. It's impossible. And that's what makes this text challenging, but I think it also makes it encouraging. I must say before I begin, um, I remember uh, back in March of 2020, it's the first time we went virtual and I had to preach to an empty uh, sanctuary. This is like the worst nightmare for any preacher. There's a few people here, music people, and um, I'm sure they're going to feel like I am tailoring the sermon just for them. And uh, I want to assure you that's not the case. I am only preaching to Bob Dahl. This is, he's the one who needs this sermon more than anyone else, I think. That's not, well, that may be true, Bob, but it's true for all of us. So what I wanted to see, see in, in this text, um, uh, we need to do four important things. The first thing we need to do is what does judge not not mean, okay? There's a lot of confusion about that verse. Then we want to look at number two, what does it mean? And then we want to look at the reason why Jesus gives this command. And then we want to get to the remedy. How do we have any chance by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live this out? So what does it not mean? What does it mean? The reason that Jesus tells us this command and then the remedy to help us move forward. So let's look, what does it not mean? Jesus starts off this section of scripture. He says, judge not that you not be judged. It's interesting, this verse, even for people who who aren't part of the the body of Christ, uh, who are not necessarily interested into religion or Christianity, they know this verse. Judge not, they will say, if anybody 
tries to suggest that any of their behavior or anything they're doing is not right. Judge not. Don't judge me. In fact, even in the church, I think some people will say, hey, you, can, you, can't, you can't tell me what I'm doing wrong. You, you can't assess me and, 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 and confront me about anything. Judge not. Well, that can't be what it means. Um, and I want to turn just one text to show you that that cannot be what Jesus is talking about. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. In other words, it is quite appropriate, and in fact, it is expected in a body of Christ where we are loving each other in an authentic community. You should expect at times for someone to come alongside you and to help you when you're struggling spiritually, and you need to be ready to do that for somebody else. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's very clear in the New Testament that we are to do that kind of ministry for one another. It is not judging, per se, if someone comes to you in humility, gently, with a clear understanding that they are a fellow sinner as well, and come alongside you to point out an area of struggle and to help restore you to a better place spiritually. That is not what it means to judge not. We should expect that to happen. We should be prepared to do that. That is not what it means to judge not. So that answers our first question. You can't come to a body of believers and expect that no one would ever come and talk to you about someone or share a concern with you. And assuming they do it gently and humbly, that is not violating Jesus' command here. So the question is, what does it mean? He says, judge not that you be not judged. That word judge there means to make a negative assessment, usually, a negative assessment based on insufficient or superficial knowledge about something. In some sense, you might want to say it means to be judgmental. And there's a world of difference between coming alongside someone and helping them with a problem they're dealing with and then simply making a negative assessment of their behavior, judging them from a distance, so to speak, and, and, and sort of making this negative assessment of them without being gentle and humble, without knowing the situation well. I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. The negative assessments based on insufficient or superficial knowledge where we make a negative assessment with someone. And notice when it says, judge not that you be, be not judged, I think the judgments that we often make for one another, we make simply in our heads. Now, we may speak those to someone, right, in an unloving, ungracious way. Well, that's judgment too. But part of our judgment is simply that we do this in our heads about somebody else. And when we do that in our heads without sufficient knowledge and based on superficial means, we create distance between ourselves and that other person, even though we haven't actually done anything about that judgment that rolls around in our heads. So what I'd like to do for you, uh, do for us, is uh, give you three examples, uh, uh, two of them clearly from the scripture, that, that, that show us what this kind of negative assessment based on insufficient or superficial uh, knowledge, what does that judgment look like? I need you to turn to James chapter 2. We'll see the first 
of these, James 2. James is writing to a group of Jewish believers who are scattered because of persecution. And they're under a lot of pressure. And James 2, verse 1, he, he, he writes this. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is one way we judge people. In this case, they're judging based on the clothes that somebody wears. This person looks wealthy. Oh, you can sit right here. Oh, you can shabby clothes. You stand over there or sit down at my feet. This is the kind of uh, wrong judging, uh, a sinful judging that often takes place as we interact with people. Superficial, external, and in this case, they begin to act on it and give some people favored positions in the assembly where they were meeting and give people other bad seats or sitting down in a position of sort of a, you know, a servile nature because of the judgment that is made. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do this all the time. We make superficial external judgments about people all the time. We do it about politics sometimes, right? We think in our minds, oh, you, you, you're a progressive? Oh, boy, or you're, you're a conservative? Oh, you voted for that candidate? You voted for that candidate? And what do we do? We judge people. When I was growing up, uh, we, we, we judged people on the schooling choices that parents made, right? So in my church growing up, we had a number of us went to a Christian school, and then we had the public school kids, and, and, and there was judgment, Right? The, the Christian school kids, we looked at the public school said, oh, you guys are secular. Oh, you guys are probably worldly. And the public school kids looked at us, oh, you live in a Christian bubble. You don't know how to relate to the real world. We do it all the time. Growing up in the church the last, you know, 30 years in different churches, the homeschoolers versus the public schoolers, the public schoolers versus the private school, and it's on and on it goes. We make judgments about COVID. Oh, I know we've done that. That's been fun, right? We've been doing that for two years, and a lot of us have judged differently over the two years. I hear it all the time. I see it on Facebook. You know, you're not safe. You know, you, you, you don't believe in science. You know, and the other people, you're fearful. You're a coward. And on and on it goes. We do this all the time. I did it as a, as a young boy. I, I guess I sort of distorted James too. My family grew up, and my dad was a pastor, and we had the worst cars of anyone in the church. My dad had this Plymouth Valiant, okay? Plymouth Valiant is blue. Now, if you remember the Plymouth Valiant, and you have to be about as old as I do to remember this, this was a car designed by preschoolers in an art class, okay? It's a box on wheels. It was the ugliest looking thing at all, and our car was terrible. It had dents all over the place. This was the first car I drove after I got a driver's license. The gas gauge didn't work, and so you were supposed to write down when you filled up the mileage and then calculate that, but invariably, my mom or my dad or me wouldn't put it down. We ran out of gas all the time. 
It was an embarrassment. And I actually got into my mind that if you had a nice car at church, something was wrong with you. You were rich and probably through ill means. You judge. Martin Luther King in his uh, great speech down in D.C., what did he say? He was looking forward to a day when what? We wouldn't judge people by the color of their skin, but at the content of their character. And yet we do it all the time. We make all kinds of assessments. And we may not even speak that assessment out loud, but simply doing it in our minds violates what Jesus says, judge not. preparation with this sermon. I've had two weeks to prepare this sermon, although I'm trying to make it short because I'm, I'm visualizing families with young children wandering around their living room trying to listen to this. But I read it's a resting study. I hope it's not true. But, but it, it even says that babies, infants, will look at a, 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 a more beautiful person long and they will gaze at that and then turn their eyes away from someone who's not as beautiful. Now, I don't know how would they determine that, but it was a study I read And I'm thinking about this in light of the fact that uh, we are hopefully, by God's grace, welcoming a granddaughter into my family in the middle of January, my daughter down in D.C., and I'm desperately worried that when I look at this baby, the baby will look at the grandmother a lot, my wife, and turn her face away from me. I will need therapy if that happens. Judge not. And of course, other ways we judge people, we, we judge people based on the sin issues that some people have. We are great at having lots of grace for the sin issues I struggle with. But if you struggle with something that I don't struggle with, I don't understand why you can't get your act together. And some people, believers, you know, and maybe they've had a pretty significant public failure of some kind, and the church fails to be able to provide love and grace, even when there's been real repentance over a long period of time. We can define people based on their biggest mistake. Judge not. One of the stories I remember about just the, the perils of, of, of judging that we all do Uh, I think it was Stephen Covey who wrote about this, uh, and I can't remember if he was talking about himself or someone else, but he's on a subway in New York City. Now, you know, in a subway in New York City, you're not supposed to talk to anybody, right? You sit quietly and read and don't look at anybody, but he was on the subway doing his thing, reading, and a family got on, family of uh, several kids, and a father got on, and um, over the next several stops, the kids with this father, it appeared to the man, uh, you know, in the subway car, the kids were getting completely out of control. It started kind of just, they were kind of fidgeting with each other, and then they started to run around the subway car, then they started disturbing the other riders of the subway, and the father, well, they thought it was the father, wasn't doing anything to restrain his children, and the man on the subway said, I am judging this man, I am saying, what kind of a father lets his kids run wild in a subway? This is outrageous. And by the fourth or fifth stop, he couldn't take it anymore. And he, went, he said sort of in a very firm and sort of nasty way, are you the father of these kids? And he says, yes. Would you do something? They're out of control. And the father says, I am so sorry. We're just coming home from the hospital. My wife just passed away. Their mother just passed away. And we're not doing too well. And the man who judged that father 
felt the full weight of his superficial external judgment with a lot, a lot of information. Judge not. I think if we're honest with ourselves, part of our fallen humanity means that we make evaluations all the time about other people based on very limited information, very superficially. And Jesus is telling us, judge not. That's one category. I'm going to look at another category. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. There's a second category of, of, of judgment that we shouldn't be making. 1 Corinthians 4. It's a very, I, this is just a really insightful passage. Uh, starting in verse 4. But Paul is talking about the different ways he was, uh, he was being judged by others around him. Um, in verse 3, he says this, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, I, I don't, I'm not aware that I'm doing anything wrong. But, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm acquitted because only God can see my heart for all it's worth. I think what Paul is trying to say is, even with ourselves, it's difficult for us to assess all of the different motivations maybe guiding our behavior at any given time. A lot of times we do the right thing with a mixture of motives. It's difficult to know which one's really the dominant one. So Paul says, I, I, I don't really, uh, I'm not aware of anything that I've done, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges. And then he goes on. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Notice what Paul is saying. I can't even judge myself, Paul says. It's not that he's not looking at himself. He is. But he's not aware that he's done anything wrong. But he knows that his motives are difficult to assess. And God and the last judgment, not a judgment to see whether you go to heaven or, or be separated from God, but the judgment where, where God and so, Jesus in some sense will evaluate our faithfulness to him and reward us accordingly. Only then will the Lord be able to pull out all of the motivations that God guided our, our behavior. And then each one will receive his con commendation from God. And so I think Jesus, certainly when he says judge not, he's telling us to be very, very careful for judging someone else's motives. You can't see. You even have trouble understanding your own heart. And yet, why are we so convinced that we know exactly what somebody else is thinking and doing based on their motivations? We judge. And Jesus would say, judge not. Lastly, I want to point out that often happens when we judge, we judge in our minds, certainly. Sometimes we judge with our words as well, and we're harsh with people. But other times what happens in judging is that we're in a conversation with either one person or a group of people and judgment is happening. Someone is making an assessment about another person 
And in that situation, our responsibility ought to be to tell that person, let's not judge. If you think this is an issue, you should go privately to the person in humility and in grace to put your arm around someone and sort of help them. Or you should at least stop talking about this because what we're doing is participating in judging somebody else. And yet, how often do we listen to those conversations? And while we may not even participate with the judgment going on, we listen quite passively, which in some sense sanctions the judging of other people. And I know sometimes, if you happen to be someone who hears those kinds of conversations, you might fool yourself into thinking, people are sharing with me some critique of someone else or some ministry or the elders or whoever it is. And, 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 and the reason they're sharing with me is because they think I'm mature and they, they trust my judgment and, and they trust me and so they're bouncing some ideas off me and so I'm this repository of some critique and you've convinced yourself that maybe that's okay and I think you're probably mistaken. I'll never forget uh, going... Um, listening to D. James Kennedy. He was a longtime pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and uh, my choir got to uh, sing at, at their church, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at Bob. I'm sorry to pick on you, Bob, today, but you're one of the eight people here. So, But I know, Bob, that you covet the uh, organ at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and but I'm not preaching on coveting, so I'm not going to deal with that. But, but I remember D. James Kennedy, he was not talking about Matthew 7 per se, but he was talking about gossip. And, and he said this arresting little metaphor that I've never forgotten. He was saying, if you find yourself the one who is being told some negative assessments of people, don't think that you're mature. No, what's really going on is this. He says, nobody dumps garbage on a clean lawn. And so if you find yourself the repository of people coming to you with all kinds of critiques of different things, that's not necessarily a sign that you're spiritually mature and they trust you. It's a sign that you allow garbage into your life and you're happy to listen to the judgments that are made about other people rather than redirecting people either to stop judging. You don't know enough to even make that assessment or if you have an assessment like that, you need to go to the person in humility, in mercy, in gentleness and help restore them. So this is just a little of what does it mean to judge not? It's when we make a negative assessment about someone in our heads we judge superficially based on externals. We, 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 we judge motives that we, it's almost impossible for us to get that right. We can't even understand our own motives. Or we turn around and listen to the judgment of others against other people. And any time we're involved in any of that, Jesus would say to us, judge not. Which leads us to the reason Jesus gives why this is not a good idea why this is wrong. And we see that in verse 2. Jesus goes on to say, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is saying here, if you are going to be judgmental in these ways, if you are going to make these negative assessments, then you're going to be judged. Uh, and and, and, and a, a pronouncement of judgment will be made against you. And the measure, the same measure you use, the same standard you use to judge somebody else, that same measure will be applied to you. 
Now, it's interesting, commentators look at this and they try to decide, well, who is doing the judgment in this case? And so you have some commentators will suggest that what happens if you become a judgmental person, and let me assure you, all of you are in some way, then, then, then at a human level, you're likely to get back the same treatment you give to others is going to be poured out on you. Now, I would say that's probably true, but I'm not sure that's what this verse is driving at. In other words, there's sort of a principle. You reap what you sow. If you were going to be extraordinarily judgmental with people, don't be surprised if people push that back on you. And, you'll, and then you'll know the destruction of your own judgment against people. But I think it's actually talking about what God is going to do. It's sort of that verse we looked at when, when Paul said that at the final judgment, you know, don't judge until the final judgment, and then God's going to make it all clear and commend us for our good works and the things that we did with poor motivations, etc., will, will, will not be rewarded. But I think it's talking about what God is going to do. God sees us. He knows us. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. And he will deal with that. Now, the good news for us, for those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior, we know that no condemnation is on us because of the death and and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we will never face the full weight of God's uh, anger against our sin because Jesus took it in our place. But that acceptance of us through Jesus does not preclude God from having a a definitive purpose for us. As Paul Tripp says, God accepts us completely in Jesus, but his acceptance has an agenda to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so when you go to other portions of the scripture, talk about God's discipline of his children, that discipline is not talking about him deciding whether or not you get to stay in the family. You're in his family. You can never do anything bad enough to get out of the family once you've entered in by grace. But because God is a loving heavenly father and he has a deep agenda to make us more like Jesus Christ, he's not going to let us judge people indiscriminately without dealing with us. And he does it graciously and gently, yes. But he is deeply concerned that we would not be people who judge and make these superficial judgments that brings disunity into the body of Christ and brings untold destruction to those around us. And I think reason, one of the reasons I think Jesus is so concerned about this is when he wants us to be these citizens of this new kingdom, this kingdom that's, that's coming, but this kingdom that has begun in some sense with the coming of Jesus, This Jesus says, the only way you get into my kingdom, you have to trust that what I did on the cross was sufficient. You can't earn your way into the kingdom. So because he's given us this incredible grace, we don't get what we deserved, and we get what we didn't work for, which is his righteousness. And then to have us receive this incredible gift and then turn around and write other people off in judgment is antithetical to everything Jesus has done. When we judge other people in some sense, we undermine the power of the gospel. We undermine the beauty of the gospel. And I think God is so concerned about that with his people that if we are judgmental, if we continue to do it in our heads or when we speak it or when we listen to it, that same loving Heavenly Father who's forgiven us of all of our sins, yes, he's going to 
to deal with us in discipline. He will judge us. He will, not punitively, but because he wants the members of his kingdom to exhibit the beauty of his kingdom in grace. So that's critical. Which leads us to the fourth thing. What's the remedy? How do we get out of this judgmentalism? Well, here's a great advice, uh, beginning in verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's interesting. We think, you know, Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus may have been a carpenter. That word speck is like sawdust. I mean, that would be, that would be one way. Just it's very small. You get a speck of sawdust. Jesus probably had that happen to him. Sawdust in your eye. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? You see something. You've got a brother or sister who's got a speck. Well, they probably do have a speck, okay? Probably several specks. Why do you notice that, Jesus says, when you don't notice the log in your own eye? Now, that word log is referring to a significant piece of lumber that would be used in, in building a structure of a building, all right? We might call it a two-by-four, all right? Maybe even bigger than a two-by-four, but a two-by-four will work. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, we're so busy judging everybody, trying to get a little piece of sawdust out of your eye, and meanwhile, we're trying to do this at the same time we got a two-by-four sticking out of our eye. I mean, it's a humorous illustration. Jesus is, it's a a great illustration. You you picture that. You know, hey, let me me help you with your problem. You've got a serious problem. You've got a two-by-four coming out. I think what Jesus is saying is, unless we deal with our own sin, how can we even begin to assess somebody else to know whether to come to them in love and mercy and gentleness and help them? Verse 4 says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The remedy for not judging others is to spend a little bit more time assessing where you are struggling, where you need, and where your sin is. And this is exactly what the Sermon on the Mount has been driving at. Remember back at the very beginning, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, recognizing I can't get to God on my own because I'm, I'm, I'm too unrighteous to do that. Or blessed are those who mourn for their sin. Jesus is coming back to these themes and saying, the remedy for judgmentalism is to recognize your own sin and spend time trying to dislodge the two by four out of your eye before you start trying to help everyone else with their little piece of sawdust. Obviously, this would go a great way to undermine judgmentalism. If we had a deeper awareness of our own sin, we mourn for our sin, we understood we're poor in spirit, if we understood the, the serious issues of sin that we need to deal with and we see the Holy Spirit beginning to deal with us, what is that going to do? That's going to drive us to Jesus and his grace. Because when you look at the two by four coming out of your eye, you realize, I need a savior, Jesus. It drives you back to grace. And when you, God's been dealing with you and, 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 and you see your sin for what it is, but you see the beauty and glory of God's grace in a deeper way, then when you come to somebody, and you may need to do that, you don't come in a spirit of judgmentalism. You come in a spirit that says, hey, I think you're struggling, I think. Uh, you're tentative with that, and you, you talk to them not as a judge, not as someone who's got it all together, but you come alongside someone and say, you know what, there's hope for people like us. And I want to help you, and I want you to help me. 
and it makes a world of difference. This remedy of focusing on our own two-by-fours before we start trying to get the sawdust out of everybody else's eye magnifies our sin. We see it for what it is, but it drives us to see the glory of God's grace, and then that's the atmosphere we go and help somebody else. You know, it's fascinating about our culture. Um, you know, when I, when I was growing up in Miami, Florida, which was a fairly cosmopolitan, you know, city, okay, it was not part of the Bible Belt at all, uh, when I was in middle school and high school, every single neighbor on my street went to some kind of a religious gathering, okay? Everybody sort of was operating, at least in a, you know, broadly speaking, a Judeo-Christian worldview, and the Bible had some input into our lives. Well, we live in a, a day and age that that's not the case. By and large, this world, okay, the culture that we live in, is fairly hostile to the Bible and has essentially rejected God's word as any kind of meaningful guide to us and yet we may live in a far more judgmental world even though the Bible has been jettisoned by many you think about our culture you think about social media you think about one wrong tweet one video of you without any context okay without any background information and all of a sudden there's a thousand comments about how you're a terrible person and you have to almost hire a public relations firm to survive it we live in this cancel culture that's, that's jettisoned absolutes and yet in its place a new set of absolutes that make the culture more judgmental than ever before. Quite apart from the pharisaical religious people that have always judged other people. And I think the incredible opportunity for us as a community centered around the coming kingdom centered around this new kingdom that Jesus is putting together. If we were to let the word of God sink into our hearts, if we judged people less, okay, and had the Holy Spirit work on us, if we recognized that God was going to hold us accountable, even as God's children, he's going to discipline us for when we get this wrong because it's so antithetical to, to who he is. If we learn to, to work on the two-by-four out of our eye, mostly, before we start trying to get the sawdust out of other people's eyes. And again, we do need to help the sawdust out of other people's eyes, okay? Galatians 6 is true. If we simply obeyed this text just, you know, like 25% more than we did last year, do you realize how, what, the, that our community here at Stonehill would be completely unlike the rest of the culture? If the external judgments were, were decreased by a fair bit, if we stopped judging people's motives, if we stopped listening to the judgment that's happening and directing people back to either stop judging and wait till you have more information or at least go to the person, not, not to us, go to the person you're concerned with, if you realize that all of us would have a deeper awareness of our sin, the two by fours in our eyes, so that when we worked with someone who was struggling, we came as a fellow struggler, so to speak, in need of God's grace. Stonehill Church would be unlike almost every other organization and every other aspect of our culture. We would be completely countercultural. And why would we be countercultural? Because we would be living out the reality of our King Jesus. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. 
Jesus knows all, he sees all, and he saw us in our rebellion. And what did he do? Did he just sit up in heaven and judge us? He could have. <laughs> he would have made better judgments than we do for one another. What does he do? Does he distance himself from us? No, he comes all the way out of heaven. What does the text say in Romans 5? While we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He came all the way to heaven and, and engaged in dying for us to deal with our sin so that our sin was judged in him. Then he turns around and, and gives us the Holy Spirit to, to live out this new agenda. He's completely accepted us, but he's not content because he loves us so much to leave us as we are. He wants us to grow in becoming like Christ, and one day we will be like Christ. So he engages. He doesn't judge. It's, it's interesting. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And when we do that for one another, by not judging, when we look at our own lives first and let our sin and God's grace be magnified before we talk to other people so that when we talk to people, we do it the way Jesus does with us. Gentle, loving, gracious, sacrificially. May God help us to live out this text in a deeper way this year. Because I know that this text, I mean, it's, I, unfortunately, I've had two weeks now because I didn't have to preach last week. I've had two weeks to sit on this. And what God has revealed in my own heart is, is, is difficult to, for me to even deal with because I judge. I can't, I, I, I'm trying to stop. I, I know what the text says. So what I want us to do is I want to lead us in a time of confession. And then I want to pronounce a promise of pardon. And then I want to close with a great hymn that encapsulates all of what we are talking about. Come thou fount in just a minute. So let's bow. Let me lead you in a time of confession. I encourage you to confess the sins that God brings to mind uh, in relationship to this text. Dear Father in heaven, we confess that uh, we, we judge, Lord, we judge people. Lord, we judge superficially. Lord, forgive us for the way we, uh, we judge and, and we, 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 we downgrade people simply because of what they wear, simply what they look like. Or we give preferential treatment to some who look like us or dress the way we would like to see them dress. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for that judging, for that judgmentalism. Lord, forgive us for um, sort of pinning on other believers, you know, sort of identifying them with the, their biggest failures, Lord. We do this. Lord, we do it with ourselves too, too. Forgive us for that. For not seeing our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in light of how Christ sees them. As fellow brothers in Christ, freely forgiven through Christ, children of God, having an inheritance. Forgive us for looking at people and judging them and identifying with their sin. Lord, forgive us for the ways we superficially judge, whether it's schooling choices uh, that we've made for our children or whether it's political identification. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for the way we've looked at people who had different understandings of COVID and how they would live, Lord. Forgive us. 
Forgive us for the ways, Lord, we make superficial judgments based on very limited information. Forgive us for the way we judge other people's motives. Lord, we can't even understand our own hearts. And yet, why are we so sure we understand the motivations of others around us? Lord, forgive us. And Lord, we confess that at times we are too eager to listen to someone else judge another person. And we don't shut that down. We listen. Sometimes we contribute and embellish it. And we don't direct people to go in humility and in mercy and in grace to an, another believer who may be struggling. And we sit in judgment and listen to judgment about them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to realize that you have forgiven us for all of our sins and if we're believers, we have no condemnation in Jesus Christ. But I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to realize that while that is our position before you, you take our sin very seriously because you have an agenda to make us more like Christ. Help us to remember that you hear and know everything we think. All of the judgments we make about others, you know all about them. Apparently, according to 1 Corinthians 4, you will bring those to light in some way, not punitively. So help us to realize that. And Lord, I pray, Lord, um, by your grace, that you would help us to think about our sin a little more carefully. And not to think about our sin and wallow in a sort of morbid self-introspection, Lord, but that we would see our sin for what it is. Help us to see the two-by-fours in our eyes. But when we see our sin, I pray that it would magnify the grace of God. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And it would drive us to Jesus and to see the beauty of his grace. And that that would overwhelm us. And that that would provide the contours for how we act towards others who may be struggling. Forgive us, Lord, when we haven't come to those who are struggling. Or we've come to them as a judge, not as a fellow struggler, fellow believer in need of God's grace. Forgive us for not dealing with our sin robustly. And forgive us, Lord, when we only deal with our sin, but we forget about your grace that deals decisively with that sin. Lord, we know we're not the people we ought to be. We know that we judge. But I pray by your Holy Spirit, drive us to Christ, drive us to your grace, and drive us drive the judgmentalism out of us for the glory of your name in Jesus name. Amen.